So tonight's Dharma talk is entitled, Remembering Who We Are. And for a moment you might reflect, uh, when you're in your best moments, who you think you are. When you're feeling the best, who do you think you are? You can keep that reflection going as uh, I talk. I was invited out to Kalamazoo, and I just got back a few hours ago, um, to lead a little mini-retreat on healing the heart of diversity. Uh, they gather, they're doing some trainings out at this institute, the Fetzer Institute, where they bring together different leaders around the country that are working with racism and sexism and all the other isms. And there's, uh, there's quite a mix of uh, Native American and African American, Hispanic and others. <laughs> all with the purpose of uh, seeing through the different ways we create separation from each other and parts of ourselves. So um, the a man that picked me up to drive me out from the airport, the limo driver, when he, I told him I was going to the Fetzer Institute, he said, ah, the Fetzer Institute, boy, it's going to open your eyes to be there, you know. And it was great, because there I was kind of thinking, oh, what am I going to teach them about, you know, and, and kind of my, like I had something to teach them. And he was right. It was wonderful. And mostly the realization that there's nobody that's the teacher, no one's the student. We just are, here we are, we're getting together and waking up together. It's really easy to get locked into being on one's own spiritual path. I'm here and I need to get there and I need to do certain things. And either in that, in that model, I'm on a spiritual path, thinking of myself as a victim, there's all these uncontrollable forces and I'm battling them, or else we get a little more with the New Age vocabulary and I'm the creator of my destiny and I'm responsible for my liberation or my cancer or my whatever. And either way, there's a huge sense of self that's in there. It's the value of the more New Age approach is it does begin to recognize the power of mind, but there's still someone that's owning that mind, that's directing things and that's controlling things. You see what I'm saying? There's, it, it stops short of really the freedom of sensing that this, is, this awakening is happening, but not to someone or by someone. In fact, it's what we're awakening to is this recognition of our interconnectedness, really of a sense of oneness, of belonging. In all the genuine wisdom traditions, and particularly you can see this with the indigenous cultures, the practices and the trainings are not so much that an individual becomes enlightened as that there's this faith and this kind of process of opening or awakening that's happening for the benefit of all beings. And uh, the sense that uh, we're not doing it so much on a self-level as that we belong to this web. We're a strand in the web. And to the extent that anyone experiences an opening in the heart, that just ripples out to bring more love into the world, because we're all connected. This is quite beautifully expressed in the bodhisattva ideal. Uh, most of you might know bodhi is awakening, sattva is being, so the bodhisattva, the awakening being, awakens not for the purpose of liberating a self, but for the liberation of all beings. It's not like a race to the finish and then somebody gets liberated and they're done and then everybody else's. It's, we're, we're in it together. So our suffering is we get stuck or get lost or forget and instead have this uh, experience of being either you know, victimized or responsible but in some way separate doing it on our own. And, and it's a very small feeling. And as I mentioned last week, the shadow of feeling that we're a separate self is fear, that it's very fear-based. So tonight, I'd like to explore what some of the practices are that help us to remember our connectedness. 
so we don't get caught in that model of thinking we're, we're trying to do this self-improvement project, but rather to recognize what we belong to and the power of drawing on that sense of wholeness and of that as we do so, we benefit the whole. Most of us have conditionally opened hearts. You know, that if everything's just right, you know, that we're at the right person or with no person or in the right setting or nothing's threatening us and everything's in place, our hearts can be quite open. Most of us have touched a lot of moments of feeling that, of feeling a generosity of spirit, you know? Not needy, not grasping, not fearful. But it's conditional. It's, it's only when things are in place. And our challenge, as it said, is to have an unconditionally friendly relationship with all of life. Unconditionally friendly. So, where we learn, where we wake up, is, is when things get difficult, our edge, when we close down, when we're no longer feeling okay or friendly towards things. One writer said that forgiveness is a really great idea until you really have something to forgive, you know? <laughs> it's so true. We believe in love and compassion and forgiveness, And yet, it's very hard to connect with any of that when somebody has dissed us, you know, disrespected us in some way. It's very difficult. When we shut down, when things are difficult, we go into habitual mode. And what happens is we regress or contract and operate off a very primitive intentionality, which is simply less pain, more pleasure. And this is something I probably say at least every week, maybe every other week. Um, because when we look really honestly, it's, it's just our basic conditioning. You know, if we're not remembering in a deeper way, we're in that, that mode. It's reptilian and it's human, it's both. You know, we do that. We can feel it. When something goes off, something goes wrong, we can feel our bodies, that they contract, our armoring comes in, we either speed up our numb out and go to sleep, but in some way we're wildly trying to control a situation. So, with the practice of mindfulness, we begin to notice that that's happening more. That's one of the first awakenings, and sometimes people get really discouraged Um, in the first weeks, months, and years of practice, because all they're seeing is the hugeness of that conditioning, you know? The Buddha taught that there is a huge power to our intent. If we stay in the intention to have more pleasure and less pain, then all of our thoughts and activities will get organized around that. But what most of us have found as we get older and more mature, is that we're more conscious of having a different intent, which is the intent to be kind, the intent to be honest, the intent to be helpful. I mean, you you all would not be here tonight unless there was not a growing and very pure intentionality to be more awake in these ways. It's just there. So the trick is, how, when we go into shutdown mode, into the habitual reflex of contraction, can we remember our deeper intent? And this is one of the most basic practices the Buddha taught, remembering intention. Right from the start, and we can do this here, any practice, right at the beginning, ah, what really matters? The intent to be here, to be wakeful to open my heart. We don't only need to do it in practice. Remembering intent is something that can wake us up at any moment of the day if we just stop. And if we get any flag of dukkha, of discomfort, of being stuck, what really matters? 
the language of the bodhisattvas is, may all circumstances serve to awaken my heart and mind. May all circumstances serve to awaken. It's quite beautiful because it's very encompassing. (laughs) Anything that goes down. So, um, tonight I was cutting it close because I'd just flown into town and I was helping my son with homework and um, gave myself a little less time than normal to get here and walked outside to my car, turned the ignition and nothing happened. <laughs> and um, my battery's dead and it's, I've been having car problems. And, and there I was, I had about 14 minutes to get here and um, there was no way to reach anybody or call anybody for a ride. Everyone that was going to be here was on their way too. And so my first reaction was I yelled really loud, oh shit, and threw my backpack on the driveway and just started stamping around. And, you know, I, I was really, really. And, um, and then all of a sudden I thought, oh God, what am I talking about tonight? <laughs> and um, so, so what I did was I stopped. I stood absolutely still and I said, may these circumstances also serve to awaken my heart and mind. And to be honest, I didn't feel, um, what I felt was amused. <laughs> I mean, mostly it was just that here I was and I was really internally in a rage. And um, just the contrast of wanting in a sincere way to be awakened and, and the way my body was feeling, it was such a mismatch that it kind of just mostly seemed funny. But somewhere it loosened it. Do you know what I mean? If we can just remember, even if it's just saying the words, and it doesn't have to be those words, You know, uh, there's an article in Common Boundary, Thomas Keaton's talking about um, his teachings of the uh, centering prayer in Christian contemplative practice. And he describes how at the, the beginning and the way that the prayer is seated is with intention. And the intention is to be available to God. And God meaning whatever manifests this life of the divine that manifests, to be available. It's the same thing. It's this very moment, wherever you are, whatever you're thinking, however you're feeling, to somewhere go, oh yeah, to be awake. How fully here can I be? So in Buddhist practice, the part of the bodhisattva path is a very formal taking of vows, and it's a powerful ritual to take the vow. May all circumstances serve to awaken this heart and mind. May this be of benefit to all beings. To be committed to the liberation of all beings. And that's really an important piece because what it does is it reminds us that we're not a self trying to be free. We're just part of this awakening process. And it's true to the extent that we loosen and let go and open, it touches many beings. So that is the starting place, is this establishing of our intent. The second piece that I'd like to mention tonight is what has been called invocation. That we encounter difficulty and we go, okay, let this, let this wake up my heart and mind, and then Invocation is really to call on that which is our most resourceful experience. Now, traditionally, what's invoked could be a deity, it could be great spirit, divine mother, God, or it could be our sense of our own hearts. But invocation means to call on in some way that which we most deeply trust the sacred in all beings and in all of life. And in the Buddha story of awakening, and this is my favorite part in the uh, myth of the Buddha, and I say myth because it can be a real story or an archetypal description, and either way it's got a lot of relevance on how it happens for all of us. So in the Buddha's story, he sat under the Bodhi tree and his intent was to awaken. And all night, circumstances arose. Mara, who, Mara is lust, anger, greed, pride, attachment, all, everything, came at him like arrows. And the Buddha stayed in that 
present compassionate awareness that made it so that those arrows, when they touched him, turned to petals and dropped at his feet. And by morning, he was pretty awake. Those were a lot of circumstances. But he wasn't totally free. And so what he did was he put his hand on the earth and he called upon the Divine Mother, the Earth Mother, to bear witness, to support, to bless, to protect. And it was at that moment that Mara completely receded and the Buddha was said to be fully awakened. What I like so much about the story is it takes it out of this kind of um, thing of some guy really making that muscle of attention and making it through the night and he made, he got himself liberated. And it recognizes this connectedness with the whole, that he called on the rest of the universe to which he belonged to bear witness and support. We're not doing this on our own. So there's a real power, a real skill in invocation and calling on that which we value and trust and believe in. Many people, that when I talk to them, well, what is really your practice like, really? I mean, what really happens? How do you deal with what's tough? Talk about spontaneously calling on God or on their grandmother or on whatever image or whatever sense of the divine is a way to bridge back into that which is within us. It's a very natural uh, mode, and it's been in all spiritual traditions to in some way call upon the divine and then rediscover that divine. It's not even within us and outside us. It's just the experience of awakened heart-mind. But sometimes we have to present it like it's some image outside us to rediscover it. This is certainly true in my practice. And uh, for a while, I was under the impression that to be really a clear-thinking, present Buddhist type, you couldn't rely on any sort of form or deity outside yourself. I mean, that was kind of my model. And in the last several years, um, in a very spontaneous way, I found myself calling on the Bodhisattva of compassion, that energy of compassion which... I know in my heart is in all beings and everywhere, but sometimes when I'm disconnected, it really helps to just posit this divine compassion energy kind of around me and all over, and then I remember that, you know, it's everywhere within also. So invocation can be done through visualization or an actual prayer calling upon The one who is calling, who is praying out of love for help, is the being that loves. The one who's seeing. What we see when we look out is really the one who's seeing. We just rediscover our own nature in invocation. So those are two parts, that we recognize this dukkha, we recognize we become separate, we recognize we're stuck to reestablish our intention, to call upon that which is sacred. Now, our practice is to connect, and this is the most central part of practice, by feeling fully what's happening at that moment. Isn't that so? I mean, isn't that what you hear in the instructions again and again? So we've said, okay, may I be present, may I be supported and blessed in being present and helped by whatever, And then just to feel it, to pause, to touch, to feel fully what's there. And yet our habit is very different. Our habit is we even begin to kind of open to it. And what do we do when difficulty arises? Most of us in some way take a walk. So let me just ask you to check in for a moment, because I don't want to talk too much without you doing that. And you might close your eyes for a second. It's just a very short guided reflection. and bring to mind a recurrent kind of situation where you experience difficulty or unpleasantness. It could be an interpersonal situation that's challenging, or it could be something around addictive behavior, 
our physical pain. But whatever challenges you, it might be in sitting practice and it might be more common not when you sit but in your daily life. So whatever the difficulty, whatever the unpleasantness, the first question is, how have you related thus far to this when it arises? Have you blamed yourself, blamed somebody else, tried to fix things, ignore, go to sleep, get busy? How have you related thus far to this recurrent difficulty? Probably done a lot of different things. Have you judged yourself? How have you suffered from your response or reaction? Whether it's judging yourself or someone else, ignoring, fixing, how have you suffered from your standard way of reacting. Sensing what's difficult, asking yourself, what pain is unavoidable in this? What's asking for acceptance? And you can open your eyes, but stay mindful. And for many, it might be that you're more and more being present with what's unpleasant, but to become aware of our, our typical reactions and how those reactions cause suffering. Because what most of us find is that whatever our style of aversion or resisting is of the unpleasant, that the way we armor ourselves the way we avoid things causes more suffering than the actual experience of what's there. Whether it's the pervasive ways that we create separation, the ways we judge or get addicted to food or busyness, or whether it's outright aggression. We all have our styles. So the first step's being aware of our, of our, our mode. The challenge is to let go of our armor, of our uh, habitual way of pushing away what's difficult. To let go of being right or being wrong. To let go of blaming others. And to simply open to the experience. Now, this is the, the core of the teachings of, of presence and the metaphor that many of you are familiar with that I think is really quite useful, is to consider um, difficulties as they arise as the poison tree. This is the Tibetan kind of description, and I'll read you a few bits of it. On first discovering a poison tree, some people see only its danger, their immediate reaction. Let's cut this down before we're hurt. Let's cut it down before anyone else eats of this prison poison fruit. And this resembles our initial response to the difficulties that arise in our life, where we encounter aggression or compulsion, greed or fear, when we're faced with stress. Get rid of it. Get rid of what we're experiencing. Other people who've journeyed a bit further, uh, rather than meeting it with aversion, intend to be more uh, compassionate. And they say, let's not cut it down. Instead, let's have compassion for the tree as well. So out of kindness, they build a fence around the tree so that others may not be poisoned, but the tree may also have its life. And so that's going from judgment and fear to allowing some. There's some compassion and and there's some boundaries still. And then finally, in a more kind of deep or mature 
stage of spiritual life. Oh, a poison tree. Perfect, just what I was looking for. This individual picks the poison fruit, investigates its properties, mixes it with other ingredients, and uses the poison as a great medicine to heal the sick and transform the elves of the world. Through respect and understanding, this person sees in a way opposite to most people and finds value in the most difficult circumstances. So again, just to ask yourself, what's most difficult right now in your life? Really, just to sense, what's really hard right now? And can you face that difficulty in this deep way of valuing what can be learned, valuing the awakening that's possible? Knowing that it's gradual, we can't always eat the poison right away. It takes a certain readiness. So it is a gradual process. But more and more, and this is what our practice does, we develop the capacity to taste it directly, to open directly and thereby be free. There's a great power in opening ourselves to feel fully what's there. Very recently, a friend of mine described uh, what happened many years ago to her when her father was dying. And as she describes it, uh, he was at a hospice center and she was there helping. And she went in one day and for whatever reason, he, he was displeased with her and he said, oh, I've had enough of you, why don't you just get out of here? And she was really hurt. In fact, she was so hurt that she, when she went in, she realized that she was feeling the hurt of a lifetime, of her father in different ways, saying, enough of you, you know, I don't like the way you are, in some way being displeased. And, and it was extraordinarily painful. And she packed her bags, and, and even though she was very much a part of the hospice support system for her father, she was about to go, but one of the nurses started talking to her and found out what was going on and said, talk to him. So she left her bags packed, but went in and, and told him, and, and told him, and just kept on putting out all her, her hurt and her pain about things from way, way back. And he got it, and he cried, and he asked her forgiveness. And she, and she said that she could not forgive him. She couldn't, he, he said, please forgive me. And she said, I'm not going to go away, but I can't forgive you. And she stayed, and she said for the next days and days and days, she was just feeling, welling after welling up of all the pain, of this lifetime at least, with this father. And it was finally after quite some passing of days that she was able to go in and have the kind of an encounter or letting go where there was a deep, deep forgiveness and opening to a whole more full level of loving. But she said what was so remarkable to her was that she really wasn't ready. And if she had forgiven him, even said the words prematurely, it would have in some way glazed over and pushed under the hurt she still needed to feel. And yet the power, the opening of her heart by letting all that pain be felt was what freed her to really forgive and love in a whole different way. It takes a tremendous courage not to go away when things are difficult, to touch what's there. This is a a poem by David White called The Well of Grief. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. So what we are armoring against, this grief, the fear, the pain, is really our vulnerability. It's where our being is soft and sensitive and tender. Trungpa, Chogyam Trungpa, called it the genuine heart of sadness, our tenderness for life. 
And it has all sorts of expressions, but when we're really opened and with that soft spot, it really opens us to vulnerability and awakens our heart. It awakens us to what's called bodhicitta, the soft and awakening heart. Last night, as the ending of our um, workshop on, with this group on diversity, uh, another woman shared her story, a Hispanic woman, about how much pain she goes through with self-blame, as so many of us, just this chronic judging. And she said she'll do things that really feel bad and really feel wrong and get just absolutely caught in the grip of it. And that the way that she begins to free up is she just simply asks herself a question when she's behaved badly, which is, what's the fear underneath the behavior? What's the fear that's been driving the way I've been being? What's the fear? And she described how when she'd asked that question, always there was a fear under there. And check it out, because fear's under it all. When we're suffering, when we're grasping, when we're running, there's fear. And when she could open to the fear, her heart would tenderize and soften towards herself. Another poem. This is Wendell Berry. I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight, what I fear and it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. So when we really do stop running, when we sense our intention to be here and stay put, we connect with what's true and there's a quality of deep, deep relief. Whether it's grief, our fear, our joy, because we run from that too. There's a relief to be with what's there. It was described so well, uh, a student at one retreat said that they now realize what joy was, which is getting real. Just getting real with however it is. There's something very satisfying about honestly, openly being with that. It's our intention. My sense is that anyone here would say, my intent is to be as real, to feel as fully as I can. And yet it's difficult or we'd do it. And it's difficult because in some way it's not safe. There needs to be a container, a safe container, a loving container, if we're to feel okay about opening to what's there. And that container comes in different shapes and forms. But the truth is, and imagine it with a child that's scared, a child that's fearful, that they will stay defended, they will lie, they will stay contracted, unless there's some sense of being held, that it's going to be okay, there's not going to be punishment, there's going to be love. And it's the same with the contractions in our own being, that unless there's a sense of care, of kindness, we don't allow ourselves to feel fully. I, I really have enjoyed this story about um, children in the D.C. area that we're doing part of a program where they'd take some myths and they'd act them out and bring them to life. And in one of them, they took a myth, uh, it's a South African myth, and in it this monster, Kodoma Doma, eats all the village people, and eventually they escape by cutting their way out. But the kids did the myth differently. Let me tell you how they did it. Uh, each of the monster's organs represented a feeling. There was anger in his stomach and confusion in his lungs. The thoughts in the monster's head then engaged in a dialogue with his feelings, and the children took all these roles of the thoughts and the feelings, and so on. The children's escape strategy differed from the original version of the myth. Once inside his heart, they sang a lullaby to soothe the monster. When he began to cry, the children slid out on his tears. Hmm. 
So, in this practice of opening fully to what is, of reconnecting to who we are, there needs to be a sense of a safe and loving container. And one of the prime ways that in the Buddha's day and today that emerges is in the form of spiritual community. You know, the Buddha taught that we take refuge. We take refuge in awakening mind, we take refuge in practices that awaken us, and we take refuge in each other. Because we belong with each other, we're not doing it alone. And when Thich Nhat Hanh, several years ago, was describing what's most powerful in our awakening, he said, the Buddha in the West is the Sangha, is the community of awakening beings. We become aware of the power of community at certain critical junctures when we're really uh, in pain. It can happen in groups. This is where I most notice it, when people take the chance to uh, disclose something that's shameful or painful. And there's this kind of magical thing that happens when people are in some way in a circle and somebody discloses something and somebody else says, yeah, this happens to me, that it becomes less personal, less bad. There's a healing in having it out in the open. I've a few times described in here a um, ritual that comes from Ghana, and it's a ritual of a tooth, and it's that when somebody has a, a some, something wrong with their tooth, it's a signal for the whole community to express what's going on for them and they, amidst dancing and chanting and drumming and so on, everybody tells their truth. And it's said that the ancestors' truths come forward. And in the midst of all that, when everybody's truths out, there's a sense of healing and freedom. And that is a power we have in community to begin to honestly relate and bear witness to and hold in compassion what happens to each of us, so it becomes less my pain, and it's the pain. It's not my love, but the love. Do you see what I'm saying? That it loosens it and it frees it up. This is one part of having a safe container. The other is the practice of metta, of loving-kindness. We probably don't go many weeks without talking about metta because when the Buddha taught presence, he taught it hand-in-hand with loving-kindness. That with the practice of offering prayers to ourselves and each other, we become more connected. There is a more spacious and soft space of awareness that makes it possible to be with what's there. It's like if you put dye in a small vat or small bucket it just colors it, but if you put it in a big lake, there's room. There's room for who we are when we open to that spaciousness of metta. It's said that when we offer metta to ourselves, we actually become the holder and the held. It's We offer it to ourselves and that small vulnerable place in us receives it. And that begins to create that container or awareness that gives us some freedom. We need to cultivate the capacity to be tender. It's not very big in this culture. We do it just towards very young children. So to the extent that when we practice metta, we can quite sincerely touch ourselves, and it helps to use physical touch touch our hand. Sometimes I imagine when I offer metta to someone else that I'm touching their cheek very lightly to bring in more of the senses and more of the heart in a real way. The truth that we find as we keep encountering more and more of the big sufferings, you know, old age, sickness and death, is that the only space that's big enough to be able to be with it is the space of love. It's not bearable otherwise. And it's liberating when we bring a wakeful compassion to what's happening. Some of you might remember I mentioned after the last New Year's retreat 
that a woman arrived, this is the retreat up at the Insight Meditation Society um, that I teach, it's a 10-day retreat over the holidays, and a woman came who had just about a week before the retreat been in a car accident and her husband died, and she came to this retreat. Now, try to imagine sitting for 10 days in silence and walking in silence and being with the enormity of that. And I did a interview with her, oh, kind of three-quarters of the way through, and she was very real with it. I mean, there was huge grief, but she said that there's room because she just keeps letting go into how absolutely boundless the love is, and it was very present. It wasn't tied to the story of, I mean, she still felt the loss of him, but the love was alive. And she said when she felt disconnected, she'd do metta. She'd offer him metta, it would wake it up. She'd offer the place in her own being that was so tortured metta, it would wake it up. When we get stuck, we can reconnect, but it takes that intentionality to reach out with prayer. Sometimes, and I'm sure every one of you knows this, we get so stuck and so small that all the metta in the world, all the may I feel happy, may you feel happy, you know, all the touching, we're just stuck and small. And all we can do at that point is really offer metta or offer the prayer that we might open whenever we can to love. Even if I can't feel it now, may this heart awaken. This is David White. I want to write about faith, about the way the moon rises over cold snow, night after night, faithful even as it fades from fullness, slowly becoming that last curving and impossible sliver of light before the final darkness. But I have no faith myself. I do not give it the smallest entry. Let this then, my small poem, like a new moon, slender and barely open, be the first prayer that opens me to faith. What we're learning to trust and to remember really is our own natural being the compassion and wakefulness, which is our nature. We forget it. We get disconnected. There are many ways back home. One way is just practicing presence, what's true right now. Tonight what I've talked about is the different ways of creating presence with our intentionality, by calling on that which we cherish, by offering kindness to ourselves, to each to each other. In a way, some of you have been introduced to Tonglen, which is uh, a meditation that really awakens compassion. The pieces of Tonglen really sum it up, that as we breathe in, feeling fully what's true, as we breathe out, offering space and compassion to hold what's true, that our whole practice is about touching what's real with tremendous care, with the intention to be fully here, this moment. So what I'd like to do is end with a little bit of practice, taking some of these elements and just exploring it as as you will tonight, and then to invite you to um, continue in your own way in the weeks to come. So if you will, just to sit up straight, this will be short. Take a few full breaths, and with the breaths, feeling here in your body, relaxing some. And to open by establishing your intention just for these few minutes, in the most sincere way and in your own words, your purpose or your intent for this meditation.
Letting yourself call on what the beloved is for you, that which represents what you most value or cherish. Great Spirit, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, God or Earth Mother, whatever energy represents to you that which most can support and bless your practice. And again, with the sincerity of your heart to invoke the presence that can hold and support your practice, just as the Buddha put his hand on the earth. And then opening the heart, sensing the compassion, presence, and wakefulness of your being. Noticing what's true in this moment. Saying yes to what arises. If what arises is difficult, let there be a very gentle and kind way of being that recognizes and soothes. For some, this might mean offering metta, offering kindness, even touching yourself. If it's not difficult, just in an honest and clear way, see what's true. Be with yourself, your experience, in a very direct and open way. If you'd like to bring your attention in a healing way to some part of your life that needs attention, now bring that to mind. To sense the being who is struggling, the fear, the want. And to extend your wish, your metta, your prayer, very simply. to open the awareness and include the sense of those that have gathered, each with their own share of suffering, of joy and sorrow. And let your prayer extend, prayer for awakening, for opening, for freedom, to all of this Sangha, this community. Rumi writes, Stay together, friends. Don't scatter and sleep. Our friendship is made of being awake. 
The water wheel accepts water and turns and gives it away weeping. That way it stays in the garden, whereas another roundness rolls through a dry riverbed looking for what it thinks it wants. Stay here, quivering with each moment like a drop of mercury. May the merit accrued, may the benefits of our practice be of benefit to all beings, whatever wakefulness, opening, or clarity. May it serve in the freedom of all beings. Closing as we open by chanting the sound current of Om, the sound current of oneness, of universal connectedness. Please inhale and then exhale. And then inhaling deeply together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.